Uh, That said, I would invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to Matthew chapter 8, verse 18, and we'll be uh, looking through uh, verses 18 through 27. If you would, just in your mind's eye, imagine that tomorrow uh, a friend of yours, let's say a very wealthy friend of yours, comes to you and hands you uh, a check. Now, for you young people, this is what a check is, okay? It's a piece of paper that has some, uh, that's linked to your bank account, okay? And you can write a person's name on it uh, and an amount of money you want to pay them, and then you sign your name at the bottom, you give it to them, they can take it to the bank, and they can do what's called cashing the check, where they can exchange this piece of paper for uh, $4 bills and, and other things, okay? Uh, Josh is looking at me like, 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 like I'm the only, like, like he thinks I'm, 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 like, I think he's an idiot, but I don't. I know you're smarter than that. It's just you're a millennial, and you guys, everything's here on the phone. Um, so imagine you have a friend, a very wealthy friend, who, who gives you a check, and on this check in the paid-to-the-order-of line is your name, and it's dated, and it's signed with your wealthy friend's signature. But in the amount line, there's nothing. It's, it's empty. It's open. It's blank. You can fill in that amount line with whatever you want to fill it in with. Remember, your friend is a wealthy friend, right? This is probably an exciting proposition to many of you this morning. It would be to me. There are lots of things that I could do with a blank check from a wealthy friend, right? The possibilities are endless. There's lots of benefits to that. A whole new world of, of possibility has been opened to you with this blank check. But now put yourself in the mind of your wealthy friend, who has written you this blank check. What has your wealthy friend who has written you this blank check said and done? Well, he or she has opened up their entire checking account to you with this blank check. Every penny that is in there of your wealthy friend's checking account is available to you. They have, they have in a sense, trusted you with everything that they own. With every bit of of their wealth, they have placed it in your hands to do with what you please. On the side of the one receiving the blank check, it's exciting to get a blank check. But on the side of the one who is writing a blank check, it it takes a, a lot of trust and faith and assumptions about what the person you're giving that check to will do with that money to write that check. In the same way, though, We find in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27, that that Jesus, following Jesus, being a disciple of His, requires us to have a blank check kind of life with Christ, to offer our lives to Him as a blank check to do with what He pleases, to open up the entirety, the storehouse of all that we are, our time, our money, our resources, our talents, our family, uh, all of that, and to give it entirely to Him. Let's look at the text together this morning. Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 18. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. Uh, You'll remember from past weeks, uh, last week, Jesus has just healed three uh, different people uh, directly following his Sermon on the Mount. And so now crowds are gathering. And he's giving orders to go to the other side of the, the lake, the Sea of Galilee that's there. Verse 19, and a scribe came up and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. 
And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. Jesus was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? Father God, would you use me this morning as your instrument? Give me only the words that you would have me to speak to speak today. God, let Jesus be the center of all that we do today. And God, may we, through reading and listening and applying your word to our lives, follow him more obediently and more faithfully as a result of what we do here this morning. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So having a blank blank check life with Jesus requires several things. And I think at least three things from the different events, the different uh, persons that Jesus has interactions with here in these verses. First of all, having a blank check life with Jesus requires sacrifice. Verses 18 and 20. When Jesus gives, uh, sees a crowd coming, he gives orders to go to the other side. A scribe comes to him and says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And so Jesus, after having preached the Sermon on the Mount to multitudes and having come down and healed others and having many others brought to him to be healed, now a large crowd is following him. Jesus is becoming very popular because of what he's doing. And seeing the crowd, he decides it's time to get away for a minute. And so he gives instructions for the disciples to get a boat ready because they were fishermen. They knew how to do that. And to go across to the other side of the lake for some retreat, for a respite from what he's been doing. And as he's going, a scribe approaches Jesus with a request to follow him. He says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. This scribe would have spent his days, his daily work, copying Old Testament scrolls. That's what he did. He would, he would see it and he would write, he would, he would copy it down, you know, making new copies to be used in the future. But he would also interpret those writings. He would interpret the Old Testament. He would interpret Scripture. And he would teach it to others. He was, in a sense, a rabbi. And as a rabbi, he had others who were learning from him, who, who were paying attention to his teaching, who were trying to learn how to teach the way that he taught because they liked the way that he was doing that. Very likely, the scribe was one of those in attendance at the Sermon on the Mount and one watching the miracles. He would have heard Jesus saying things like, I tell you, or you have heard it has been written, but I tell you, right, fill in the blank, where Jesus is kind of taking all these Old Testament laws and in a sense turning them on their head or, or taking them to a level that most people had not considered. And so the scribe is hearing Jesus re- recite the law and then, and then reinterpret it or interpret it anew, teach it a, a different way, and he's compelled by that. He's convinced by Jesus' teaching, and so he wants to follow him. As a scribe, as a rabbi, this guy would have understood discipleship. He would have understood what it, what it means for someone to follow someone as a teacher and to learn from them, to learn to think about Scripture the way that that person thought about it, to apply Scripture the way that that person applied Scripture in their life. And yet here he sees something about Jesus that is different, that is better, maybe even greater than what he is able to accomplish. You'll remember from the end of chapter 7, chapter 7, verse 29, Matthew says this, um, Jesus was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. And yet here is a scribe who is so impressed by the way which Jesus teaches that he comes to him to follow him. He calls Jesus teacher, indicating that he desires to learn from Jesus. 
This scribe, who is a teacher, has found now a better teacher to learn from. There's something, though, in his address and calling Jesus teacher that's, that's lacking. Right? Because you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 8, a leper comes to Jesus. And what does that leper call Jesus? How, do he, how does he address Jesus? As Lord. And after that, a centurion comes to Jesus. And how does that centurion uh, address Jesus? As Lord. Not teacher. Not rabbi. Not good wonder worker. Right? But Lord. And so this scribe coming to Jesus, calling him teacher, seems good. Teacher, I want to learn from you. But in a sense, it's lacking. It's not complete because he's not yet recognized. He's not in his address of Jesus, recognizing that Jesus is, in fact, Lord and not merely teacher. Jesus hears this man and and receives his, his, uh, his desire to follow Jesus, and he responds to it in verse 20 by saying, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is, in as much saying, animals have homes, but I don't. Right? The foxes of the field, the birds of the air, have greater security and permanence in life than I do. Now, we know that that's not entirely true. Jesus is speaking somewhat hyperbolically. We know he had a home in Capernaum where he spent most of his time probably living with Peter and Peter's family. But he wasn't there often. He was moving around a lot, walking around a lot, going to many places. So Jesus' ministry was largely itinerant. He was bouncing around from place to place, rarely ever staying in one place for very long. Jesus saying this, that the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head, reminds us of Matthew 6, verses 25 through 34, where Jesus recalls God's care for sparrows and for the lilies of the field and how we ought to not be anxious or worried about anything because God, our Father in heaven, knows us and cares for us and provides for us all the more better than he does for the sparrows and for the lilies. And we saw then that the kind of care that God provides for his people is, is, not, is not so petty. It's not so small as just food for the day and clothing, right? It's much greater than that. God cares for us. God provides for us in giving us a means of salvation and to be right with God, to be saved from our sins, to have them forgiven, and to enjoy a right relationship with Him. Jesus says the Son of Man doesn't have the kind of security that even the animals of the field do. This title, Son of Man, is, is Jesus' favorite title for himself in the Gospels. He loves to call himself Son of Man. And in doing so, I think he's invoking all kinds of Old Testament scripture. But specifically, I think that he is referring to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And there Daniel has this vision, and this is what Daniel sees. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, that is, one with a human appearance, or one who appeared to be human. And he came before the Ancient of Days, who is God, and he was presented before him. And to him, that is, to the Son of Man, one like a Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. There are, in Jesus, calling himself Son of Man, these very intentional messianic overtones to what he's calling himself. He is referring to this vision that Daniel had of one who was in the appearance, one like a son of man, being presented before the ancient of days, God the Father, and receiving all authority and power and wisdom and and rulership over all things. And Jesus is saying, I am that son of man. At the same time, it's a very subtle way 
of confirming his deity, of, of his confirming his divinity without specifically saying, I am God, right? Because had he said that, the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees would have been upon him at once and they would have ushered him off uh, to be killed and it was not yet his time. And so he intentionally chooses this, I don't want to say cryptic, but veiled expression of who he is, of his identity to say something about who he is, but not to take it all the way just yet. And yet this scribe calls him merely teacher and not Lord. What's the point of this interaction that Jesus has with this scribe? I think the point is this, that this scribe and his eagerness to learn from and his eagerness to follow Jesus has not considered the kind of sacrifice that he must be prepared to make in order to follow Jesus. Even before following, he must content himself with lacking security without having permanence, with the possibility of not having a home. He must content himself with not having comfort in this life for the joy of the presence of Jesus. For us, in the same way, it means this, that to be a disciple of Jesus, you must, I must be willing to give up the comforts of security. We must be willing to give up the comforts of security. There are things that we hold on to for security in this life. My daughters have, um, I wouldn't call them security blankets, but they're kind of like security blankets. They're just blankets that they sleep with and they love to carry around and that sort of thing, right? But we in our own lives have things that we carry around like that, things that, that give us comfort, things that make us feel secure, even in difficult times or, or just, you know, I don't know, on a daily basis. Things like our homes, things like our jobs, things like our extended family and the relationships that we have there. There's all kinds of things that we hold on to for security. And Jesus is saying, if you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to give all of that up. You've got to be willing to go without. Why? Because he is going without. He goes without security. He ministered without the comfort of a permanent home. And he's saying, if you want to follow me, you take on the same kind of life that I have and you give it all up for the sake of the kingdom. In January of 1936... The Southern Baptist songwriter B.B. McKinney was leading the music at the Alabama Sunday School Convention, which was held that year in the town of Clanton. The featured speaker was Reverend R.S. Jones, one of McKinney's friends for many years, who because of ill health had recently returned from missionary service in Brazil. The two men were visiting over dinner one evening during the conference when Mr. Jones revealed to Dr. McKinney that his physicians would not allow him to return as a missionary to South Africa. And when asked about his future plans, the missionary said, I don't know, but wherever he leads, I'll go. The words stuck in Dr. McKinney's mind, and before the convention's evening session had begun, he had written both the words and the music to this song titled, Wherever He Leads, I'll Go. That song goes this way, Take up thy cross and follow me, I heard my master say. I gave my life to ransom thee, surrender your all today. He drew me closer to his side. I sought his will to know. And in that will, I now abide wherever he leads, I'll go. It may be through the shadows dim or o'er the stormy sea. I'll take my cross and follow him wherever he leadeth me. And you know the chorus, wherever he leads, I'll go. Wherever he leads, I'll go. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever he leads, I'll go. Many of us have sung this song in our lives. We've sung it in worship. We've sung it in the shower. We've sung it while we're mowing the lawn. It's a, it's a song that kind of sticks in your head, and it's a good song to sing. It's a good truth to remind ourselves about the cost of discipleship. 
But church, have we ever sang, wherever he leads, I'll go, and sing it not of and for ourselves or about ourselves or merely merely in tribute to those who have given all? So as to say, not wherever he leads, I'll go, but wherever he led, they went. Praise God. Love those missionaries. Wherever he led, they went. Amen. But it's scary to say, wherever he leads, I'll go. To say, wherever he leads, I'll go. Because to say that and to mean that is to say, Jesus, you have a blank check with my life, with my comfort and my security. You do with it what you want. Wherever you lead, I'll go. Having a blank check life with Jesus, following him with blank check discipleship requires sacrifice. The ability, the the willingness to give up all for the sake of Christ. But it also requires selflessness. Verses 21 and 22 again. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. So here another disciple, likely not one of the twelve, not one of Jesus' inner circle, just a, a casual follower, probably again present for the Sermon on the Mount, witness to the healings, approaches Jesus with a willingness to follow, but with an added request. First, let me go and bury my father. It's almost as though he saw the interaction with Jesus and the scribe and is willing to, to give up certain things. He understands what he must give up, but he's not yet considered who he must give up. A few observations about his request and, and him saying, first let me go and bury my father. It's very likely, and most scholars believe, <clears throat> that this man's father was not yet dead. Okay, and, and we know his father was not yet dead for several reasons. Assuming that this man was Jewish, had his father been dead, uh, it, it was commonplace or it was required that the body be buried within 24 hours of death. So if his father was dead, he wouldn't have time to be following Jesus around that day. Okay? But beyond that, after the death of a Jewish parent, the, the, the child of that parent would go for a customary period of mourning for about one year following the death of their parent, during which they could do no joyous activity whatsoever. So it's highly unlikely, highly unlikely that this guy's dad was actually dead. Instead, I think what he's saying is something like this. Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go, but my dad wouldn't really approve of me following you. But once he's dead, there won't be a problem anymore, right? I don't have to worry about dishonoring my father. So once dad's dead and once he's buried, I'll come follow you. He's not dead yet. He's, he really doesn't even have one foot in the grave. You know, I mean, he's still doing well. He's 62 and still active, right? He's not even close to dead. But once he is dead, Jesus, I'm all yours. How does Jesus respond? He says, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Whew. Taken figuratively, Jesus might be saying something like this. Let those who are, and maybe some of your translations say this, let those who are spiritually dead, let those who are not following me, let those who do not care to follow me and give up everything, let them bury their own dead. Let them bury each other. But you, you follow me. Taken literally, Jesus literally saying, let the dead bury their own dead. He's being really sarcastic here to draw out the silliness of this man's request to wait a little while longer before he follows Jesus. Either way, the point is clear. This man can have no reservations. He can have no conditions in fulfilling his, in fulfilling his call to follow Jesus. You don't get to say, Jesus, I'll follow you, but first. That is not a condition of following Jesus. The point of this interaction Jesus, with Jesus and this man 
is this, that this man seeking to please his father, or at least to buy some time before he will follow Jesus, is unwilling to follow Jesus without conditions. He wants conditions. He wants parameters for his following of Jesus. But church, the only condition for following Jesus is unconditional selflessness. To follow Jesus, to be a disciple, is to lay, to lay aside any agenda of your own for the agenda of the Lord. It is to put your will aside for God's will to be done in your life. True discipleship has no hesitation. True discipleship has no regard for one's own will, but only for the will of Jesus. For us, in the same way, church, to be a follower of Jesus, we must come to Him without reservations and without conditions. If He is Lord, that is Lord of all, He's controlling everything, He has all authority, then everything belongs to Him, and He can be trusted with all that we have. There should be no hesitation to give Him unconditional discipleship, knowing that He is Lord of everything, and He can be trusted to do that which is good and that which is right with all that we have and all that we are. I'm reminded of a similar, almost parallel story uh, or, or event in Jesus' life that's recorded in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 through 27, and then in verse 33, when, Jesus, uh, when, when this is what occurs. Now, great crowds accompanied him, which happens often in Jesus' ministry. And he turns to them and he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So therefore, verse 33, he says, Any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Those are harsh words from our Lord. They seem harsh. If you want to follow Jesus, you've got to hate your mother and father and wife and children, brothers and sisters, even your own life. What does that mean? Jesus, what are you really calling me to? Are you saying I have to hate my family? No, I think Jesus is intentionally speaking with exaggeration, right? He's he's speaking in hyperbole. And he's saying to those who are following, if you want to follow me, your love and devotion for me must be so great that by comparison, your love for your family and even your own life would seem like hatred. That is how much you must love me. He's not saying don't love your family. He's not, he's not saying that at all. He's saying love me so much more that by comparison, your love for your family looks like hatred. Are we willing to give up so much of ourselves and even so much of our relationships to follow Jesus that way? Are we willing to say, Jesus, I love you so much more than anything else? Not that I don't love my family because I do. They're a good gift from you. But Jesus, I love you so much more. That, that wherever you lead me, wherever you call me, I will follow without hesitation. I will follow without condition. So having a blank check kind of life with Jesus, blank check discipleship requires sacrifice, it requires selflessness. But also, as we see in verses 23 through 27, it requires unflinching faith. Unflinching faith. In verse 23 through 27 says this, He got into the boat, and when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there, was, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he, but Jesus, was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. My translation doesn't have an exclamation point there, but I'm pretty sure it should. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? 
In verse 23, those who have counted the cost, those who have prepared themselves for sacrifice and for selflessness, those who have set aside their own agendas, get into the boat with Jesus. Okay? Who's in the boat with him? I'm not sure that it's the 12 yet at this point because Matthew hasn't introduced all 12 of the, uh, of the disciples yet in his gospel. But at the very least, it's Peter, Andrew, James, and John that we learn, uh, learned in Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 through 21, followed Jesus, left their fishermen's nets, left their business, and followed Jesus. So at least those four, maybe more. And they have counted the costs, and they are following Jesus into the boat to go on the other side of the, of the lake. And while they're out there in the middle of the night, the storm comes. Now, the Sea of Galilee, for all of us who have been there, we all know. Um, I haven't. I'd really love to, by the way. So if you want to send me on a trip to the Holy Land and to the Sea of Galilee, I'd gladly accept your donations for that end. The Sea of Galilee is known for... I'm just kidding. Don't write me checks. The Sea of Galilee is known for these sudden squalls and tempests, these big storms that just kind of pop up out of nowhere, uh, and, and, and often very violent when they do. And the fishermen, these, these disciples, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, professional fishermen on the Sea of Galilee, would have known that. They would have been well acquainted with that, right? But this kind of storm is different, okay? These experience, this is the kind of storm that, the, that, that puts into the hearts of men the fear of God and of all things, right? That's how big this storm is, including these professional fishermen. In fact, so interesting, so, so violent is this storm that Matthew actually uses the words seismos megos in the Greek to describe the sea. Seismos meaning earthquake, megos meaning great. Matthew says, this is no ordinary storm. This is an earthquake at sea, if you could imagine such a thing. That's how violent the thing was. This is, in, in a sense, a mega storm out on the sea in the middle of the night. And in the middle of it, well, these disciples are bailing water and freaking out, screaming like little girls, right? Jesus is sleeping calmly in the bottom of the boat. He's just sleeping there in the middle of danger. The boat's taking on water. The wind and the waves are throwing the boat all over the place. And Jesus is asleep, taking a nap. In some ways, I can't blame him, and I understand. There's some days after I preach on a Sunday morning, and all I want to do the rest of the afternoon is, is like cuddle up on the couch and just fall asleep, right? It's just it's exhausting work. And here Jesus has been preaching all day and healing all day and having these encounter, encounters with people. And we know that he is fully God, but he's also fully man. And so he's subject to, the, to the, uh, just the frailty of human flesh and the need for rest. And so here after an exhausting day of ministry, Jesus is dead asleep in this boat, in the middle of the storm. The disciples seem to do whatever they can to try to mitigate the situation. But in verse 25, they, they seem to lose all hope and they cry out to Jesus, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. Consider how they address Jesus compared to how the scribe did earlier. The scribe called him Jesus. The disciples call him Lord. So far, so good. Right? We ought to expect them, the disciples, to call him Lord. They've made him Lord. They're following him wherever he goes. Good job, disciples. And then they say, save us. We are perishing. We would think this would be a good example of who and how to cry out to for salvation. And for the unbeliever, 
that is true. This is the right way to call out to Jesus. For you who are here today that do not know Christ as Lord, that do not know the, the peace and the hope and the comfort of having your sins forgiven and being in a right relationship with God the Father, uh, being able then to spend eternal life with God, your response to Jesus ought to be, Save, Lord, I am perishing. Sin is that serious. Sin is that deadly that our cry to Jesus before knowing Him ought to be, Lord, save me, I'm perishing. But not so for the follower of Jesus. Not so for the disciple. For the follower of Jesus, in the midst of this storm, to say, save, Lord, we are perishing, this is a a faithless response in the presence of the faithful one. Look what happens in verse 26. Jesus rebukes their faithlessness. Verse 26, he says, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. The wind is blowing. The waves are splashing over. The boat's taking on water. The disciples are freaking out. And Jesus says, You woke me up for this? For real? I was sleeping. I've been working hard, guys. It's been a long day. You woke me up for this? While the wind's blowing and the waves are splashing, the disciples are freaking out, right? Jesus, you woke me up for this. You of little faith. Where is your faith? And then Jesus stands up and he speaks a word to the storm. He rebukes the storm and it stops. It goes from very literally, as Matthew would say, from that of a mega storm to mega calm. He uses the same adjective for both the storm and the calm. While Jesus is asleep and the storm is raging, it's a mega, mega storm. And at the word of Jesus, at the word of the Lord, everything ceases and it's like glass on the sea. From mega storm to mega calm at the word of Jesus. It's a dramatic event and the disciples begin wondering, begin questioning, asking about the nature of Jesus' identity. Verse 27, they marveled, they were in awe, saying, what sort of man is this that even the Winds and the sea obey him. The question that the disciples ask is one that in the course of Matthew is already being answered. We, we know the answer to this question. What sort of man is this? This is the Messiah. Right? This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity incarnate in flesh among us. That's who this is. But the disciples are still in the process of answering this for themselves. Jesus is the maker of the universe. John 1 tells us in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's now in human flesh. The answer to this question is that He is a kind of man that has never before existed and the likes of which will never exist again or alongside Him. He is fully God and He is fully man, wrapped up in one, able to do all of the things that God can do because that's who He is. That's what sort of man He is. Psalm 104, verses 5 through 9 says this. The psalmist writes, The Lord set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains. Catch this, verse 7. At your rebuke, they fled. At your rebuke, the waters fled. What does Jesus do to the storm? He rebukes it. 
At the sound of your thunder, they took to flight. The mountains rose, the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might not again cover the earth. The same God who rebukes the waters in creation and after the flood, sending them back to their proper place, is now standing in a boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with a bunch of frightened little girls, I mean men, behind him, speaking to the storm, rebuking the storm. And what happens when he speaks? It stops. What sort of man is this? This is the Lord. The focus of this passage is on Jesus' identity. The focus of this passage is on His trustworthiness as the Word incarnate. It's not about what Jesus can do for you. This is not a passage about Jesus calming all the storms in your life. This is not a passage about how Jesus wants to make your life easier and better and fix all your problems. No, this is a passage that telling us about the fact that Jesus is Lord. And His followers must follow Him with unflinching faith. Why? Because He's faithful. And He's trustworthy. Indeed, Jesus will not always calm every storm of life. Nor will He always seek to make our lives easier The Apostle Paul testifies to this in his own life. In 2 Corinthians 12, verses 7 through 10, Paul says this. He had received some uh, pretty uh, spectacular revelations, visions from God. And he writes this to the church at Corinth. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of these revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, the Lord said to Paul, in the midst of his anguish, with a thorn in his side, not a literal thorn, but speaking figuratively of this thing, this affliction that would, that would constantly bother him the rest of his life. This is what God says to him in response to his prayer for removal. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses with insults. I am content with hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I am content with megastorms, so to speak. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why? Because in our weakness and our, our dependence, full dependence upon Christ, His true power to see us through those difficulties, to show Himself marvelous, to show God glorious, to edify our spirits that our faith might grow... In that process, His strength is shown. His power is made manifest. In this interaction with the disciples in the middle of the storm of the sea, we find that true true discipleship comes, really following Jesus, comes with real faith that Jesus is Lord. That He is Lord. And such a faith brings, ought to bring, a steadfast confidence to us. Not because of who we are, but confidence in the identity of the one that we are following. Why should the disciples not have been freaking out in the storm? Because Jesus is there. Because the Lord is there. They ought to know better. It's this kind of faith in Jesus that does not flinch in the storm because the Lord of creation is in the boat with us. Jesus may not want to calm every storm in your life. Jesus may so will, the Father may so will, that you suffer and are afflicted by things your entire life. 
And whether the Lord acts in your life to calm this storm or in His will, He allows it to rage on, our fears are quelled. Our fears are put to sleep. They are killed by the peace of knowing that He is in control. Church, to be followers of Jesus, to be true disciples, if that's what we're going to call ourselves, our faith in Him must be, must be the kind that kills our fears. Our faith in Him must be the kind that kills our fears. That there is no man, that there is no government, that there is no agency that can so threaten us as to cause real fear. Why? Because we, our souls, are secure with God in knowing Christ as Lord. And whether he, whether he makes it easier for us, whether He heals our afflictions, whether He relieves that financial strain, whether He saves our home or whatever the case may be or not, He is Lord and worthy to be trusted. And that kind of faith is the kind of faith that will give you confidence to stare the devil in the face and go storming the pits of hell with water pistols, right? I mean, that's the kind of faith that, that, that's the kind of faith that, that we ought to have that puts those kind of fears to rest. Towards the end of World War II, German theologian and pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer was arrested by the Nazi regime and was transferred from one concentration camp to another. Finally, he ended up at Flossenburg where he would be executed as a Jewish sympathizer, uh, as one who had actually conspired uh, against Hitler. And a camp doctor who on the day of Bonhoeffer's execution witnessed his hanging, he described the scene this way, this, this camp doctor says, the prisoners were taken from their cells, and the verdicts of court-martial were read out to them. Through the half-open door in one of the huts, I saw Pastor Bonhoeffer, before taking off his prison garb, kneeling on the floor, praying fervently to his God. I was most deeply moved by the way that this lovable man prayed, so devout and so certain that God heard his prayer. At the place of execution, he again said a prayer, and then climbed the steps to the gallows, brave and composed. His death ensued in just a few seconds. The doctor goes on to say, In the almost 50 years that I have worked as a doctor, I have hardly, hardly ever seen a man die so entirely submissive to the will of God. Church, may our faith be like that. In the face of certain death, May we look steadfastly at God and say, I'm not afraid. Come what may. Let the storm rage on. You're in the boat with me. Church, do we have that kind of faith? Are we being those kinds of disciples who don't just get into the boat with Jesus, but regardless of what's going on in the world around us, are we not afraid by anything because of who is there with us, because of who it is that we're following? If you have fears today, if you're concerned about situations in your life, if things seem to be unraveling around you and you're anxious and you're worried and you're terrified about what tomorrow might bring, have more faith. Trust Christ more. Not because He's forgotten you and He needs you to cry out for His attention. No, because He already knows you and He's in the boat with you. And it's His good will to do whatever He will with your life. But what He wants is your faithful discipleship, your trust in Him. And in so doing, in so doing, 
We, Christians, disciples of Jesus, true followers of Jesus, who have the kind of faith that kills our fears, says to the rest of the world, there's nothing this world can do to harm me. My future is secure. My soul is secure in the hands of the one that gave his life for me. That's a good word to the world today. That's why Jesus wants us to have this kind of faith. Because it doesn't show how good we are, it shows how great he is. It shows his saving power to the world when we have that kind of faith that kills our fears. When we have the kind of faith that leads us to give up everything at his call, our will, our agenda, our home, if that may be, to sacrifice all, to give away everything for his glory, to be a follower of him, for the joy of being in the presence of Jesus. There are texts that when I preach cut me up and down all week long before I do. This is just one of them. Another one. It seems like there's been many lately. Right. There may be a lot going on in your life. You might be really stressed out. There's a lot going on in our church, right? In this time of transition, a bit of a storm there. I wouldn't call it mega storm, a bit of a storm there. Maybe at work, maybe in your family. Are you following Jesus faithfully with all that you have, even in the midst of it? Have you said to Jesus, Lord, my life is a blank check to you. Wherever you may call, wherever you may lead. Lord, if you call me to sell my house and move overseas, it's yours. Done. Lord, if you call me to leave Albuquerque, to move somewhere else, to use my job and my influence in another place to help start a church and spread the gospel in a different place in the United States, you got it. It's yours. All yours. In the middle of sickness and, and, and affliction and suffering in your life? Are you saying, Jesus, regardless of what happens, I'm all yours. I know you got this. And however it turns out is how you want it to turn out. It's all yours, Jesus. I'm not freaking out. I'm not bailing water. I'm not screaming like a little girl. Because Jesus, I know you're with me. Friend, today, if, if you don't know Christ this way, if you don't know Jesus as Lord this way, as King of your life, as Master of your life, let me say to you, you will always struggle with fear and uncertainty and concern. But when you trust Christ as Lord, when you give Him your life, when you say, Jesus, there's nothing I can do to be right with God because of the sin in my life. There's no way I can fix all the things that are going on. Jesus, I need you. You died for me. You rose again. I believe it. It's true. Take my life. All of me. Do what you want with it. Save me from my sin. And give me the kind of faith that will kill my fears. That will kill my anxiety. That will kill my concerns. Jesus, give me the security of knowing that I'm right with God. That when I die, I won't be lost forever. Separated from God forever. But in the presence of the one who created me. Jesus, only you can do that. Take my life, all of me. It's all yours. I've got to admit that, that for younger people like me, and I'm getting older every year, uh, it's a little bit easier to think about what God might have me give up to sacrifice, to lay aside. Uh, when I've got more years ahead of me, presumably, than I do behind me. I can think about a possibility in which God might call me and my family to sell our home and move overseas to be missionaries. I can foresee that, okay? 
young people, you can probably foresee that as well. But for, I've got to admit that this is where I lack uh, uh, wisdom and experience, right? For those of us who, who have more years behind us than we do ahead of us, uh, that, that's an altogether different question, I think. Many of you have already sacrificed much, given up much, laid aside much. And I'm going to be completely honest in saying that I don't know. For those of us who are in Christ, as we reach or near the ends of our lives, I'm not sure exactly what I can challenge or call you to give up. Except to say, keep giving everything to Him. Keep your agenda wide open with the Lord. Keep open the certainty, the, the, the possibility that He may call you to leave comfort and security and certainty for following Him. And I would invite you, those of you who are um, older than me and who may have fewer years ahead of you than you do behind, this week, would you encourage me and help me as a pastor to know how God is calling you to do those things? Will you shoot me an email this week? Give me a call and, and tell me, Stephen, this is, this is what God has called me to sacrifice in my final years. This is what, this is what faithfulness in Christ, unflinching faith, that kills fears. This is what it looks like in my life as a senior adult. This is what it looks like in my life as one who's struggling with illness or with cancer. Would you call me and, and encourage me and even challenge me with the ways that God is encouraging and challenging you this week? That's your homework, okay? So you, you, you who are older have to think about this this week, and, and I'm asking that, you, that you'll help me grow and help me to understand that so that... So that Two reasons. One, when I preach this passage again, whenever that may be, I can make better application right, for people who are older. But two, when I get to be your age, Lord willing, I'll, I'll have the example. We'll all as a church have the example of faithful saints who have done it and who have gone before us doing it. In a moment, we're going to sing a song of response. And, and as we do, I, I would ask that that we really consider whether we are faithfully following Jesus this way. Have we really given Jesus a blank check with our lives and even with the life of our church to say, Jesus, whatever you want to take away, take it away. Wherever you want to lead us, lead us. We're going. Whatever it is that you want us to give up or to set aside to follow you better, to follow you more faithfully, Jesus, show us where those things are. Let that be your heart's prayer as we respond. If today you know and you realize you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, you've never made Him Lord of your life, you've never come to a point where you trust fully in His death for your sins and His resurrection from the dead and trusted in that for forgiveness of sins and for a right relationship with God, let this be the day of salvation for you. I'll be here this morning to receive you, to pray with you, to counsel with you if you want to receive Jesus. If you need prayer for anything, I'm here this morning and happy to do that. Let's pray and praise Him. You come and prepare to lead us to respond to God's Word and His call to discipleship today.